0: I'm Billy. I'm Drew, and this is Pilot Club. So, Drew, we're starting day by day by heading to Salt Lake City. That's for right. Murder amongst the Mormons. Take us through it.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, Murder amongst the Mormons is one of Netflix's long line of uh, true crime documentaries mm. that's dropping on their on their streaming service. Obviously, there's a there's an avid, rabid fan base fan base for this product. Uh, I count myself. One of them.
0: Yeah, well, we, we, we've often joked, haven't we, that this podcast could almost be a true crime series <laughs> podcast.
1: <laughs> well, really, I think our heart is really often in these true yeah, crime yeah. series.
0: We're tapping into a golden moment. Yes, that's we're right. We're not projecting. We're, we're riding the wave of true crime at the moment. That's right. Quantity and
1: quality. Mm. Um, so Murder on the Mormons um, delves into three bombings mm. that took place in Utah in 1985, mm. uh, killing two and injuring one. The uh, fatal explosives were all pipe bombs, and they all relate to a mysterious incident associated with a particular man at the time. And that particular man was called Mark Hoffman. Mm. So this centre, this TV series, uh, true crime series, really revolves around Mark Hoffman, who was a dealer in Mormon historical documents and really was riding the wave of the... uh, I suppose, the document craze, the Doc historical document craze this was of the 70s and 80s.
0: This was something I found so fascinating about this series, which I think for me, from the pilot, could be a top-tier true crime series for Netflix.
1: I think certainly the idea, the, the idea, mm-hmm. and I think it has a couple of different, a constellation of a couple of very interesting facets, mm-hmm. I think, which really elevate Netflix's true crime series. When they're delving into or penetrating a, a mysterious community, insular community like mm-hmm. this, I think that's... That's always something that's particularly interesting. I think it's particularly a marginal community or a very tight-knit community as well, another particular strength.
0: Well, one of those communities, it's weird, it's kind of marginal, but also in some ways continuous with Christianity and totally the norm in Utah. I mean, what I liked about this was I thought it was a perfect balance in terms of episode structure. So I thought the first half was the best kind of fascinating backstory I mean, I, I I could almost have watched an entire series about the Mormon Church. Like mm. its mythology is so interesting. Yes. And then in the second half, you have this incredible, you know, suspenseful timeline of the bombing. So just both parts of it, the the Mormon. I mean, I, I had something I found fascinating. I had no idea that there's this kind of there's this fascination. Well, yeah. sorry. I'll talk about it in a moment. You, you continue.
1: Well, uh, that that is effectively the the yeah. plot synopsis. Yeah. But yeah, I spoke I, the first half of this uh documentary really just delves and situates mm. sets the scene and creates context for this particular mm. crime in uh mm. i guess question mark mm. and yeah I, mean, I suppose a lot of it does really delve into the mormon i suppose how would you describe it, hagiography or mm. um
0: well, it's something, something that's fascinating is I, I had no sense that there was such a fetish for collectibles and for objects and for documents within the Mormon faith. So yes. it seems like, especially amongst high-ranking members of the LDS Church, there's this fixation with with collection. And, and it, it, it seems like this really boomed in the 70s, in the late 70s, just before the crime yeah. took place. Well, they say,
1: I, I was reading a, a little bit of interesting hmm. historical hmm. information is that the Mormons opened their archives hmm. in the early 1970s oh, and right. that ushered in a wave of this, this, kind of document, uh, there, there were enormous revelations at the time. The Mormon Church was only 150 years old mm. at the time in 1980, mm. so there were an incredible number of. It was basically a documentary trove that was all of a sudden discoverable by both professional and amateur historians alike.
0: And maybe also, and the documentary suggests this a kind of paranoia on the part of the church yes. about the ways in which that might compromise the mythology.
1: That's right, and that's why I think these mm. these documents were so tightly held before, and mm. there was there was this simultaneous. I suppose fetish for these these early historical documents, and also fear or anxiety that mm. they would actually mm. uh, undermine their particular, I suppose, the more mythology, and especially their their genesis, the genesis of their religion, They're particularly unusual, well, not unusual to them, obviously, but mm. the the very interesting uh, twist that they place on yeah. the conventional kind of Christian, I mean, um, messianic story.
0: It's such a fan. Like, it's such a fascinating theology, isn't it? And especially. A kind of as an instance of, like, American religion. So I was reading that Mormonism, it emerged during what they call the Second Great Awakening, like mm. the Puritan Awakening. And, you know, I kind of knew this, but I'd forgotten that the basic tenet of the Book of Mormon is that First Nations Americans are descendants of the Israelites. Right, Yes. So, like, it's this way of claiming the entirety of American history as a unique form of Christianity, which is really fascinating. Just watching this, watching this documentary, I wondered if it's partly the the kind of how recently the religion was founded that makes it obsessed with documents. So it's, you know, most other monotheistic religions like Christianity, Judaism, Islam, and most other branches of Christianity, their origins are in the distant past. Mm. Whereas this one, this is probably the most, you know, the biggest, most recent offshoot of Christianity and its its origins are so recent, like only, you know, at that point 150 years ago. You can see why there was this fascination but also this fear of tracking mm. down those earliest texts, those earliest documents. That's right. That's a big part of the first half here, isn't it? That that search and that fa- that fascination.
1: Definitely right. And, and and where this true crime, or at least the pilot of this true crime documentary, starts delving into is, is Mark Hoffman's incredible revelations. Mm. So his incredible discoveries the in salamander the salamander letter. Archives. The white salamander letter. Yes, that's right. And one particular fixation of this pilot is on a particular letter that Mark Hoffman discovered which was dubbed the white salamander letter mm. that in some ways threatened to unseat the whole story mm. the messianic story mm. so in the mormon the church effectively the, the i suppose the the founding the founding story of this mm. particular religion is John Smith an american uh, being directed Joseph, by Joseph Smith. Joseph Smith my John apologies, Smith. Pocahontas. Different. John Smith. Different thing. Yes. Different thing. <laughs> That's right. Yep. That's right. And I was also going to say Adam Smith in as well. Yep. A lot of popular Smiths. So be careful with the big, Smiths. It was, a, it was a big Smith era. <laughs> so <laughs> it was a, it was the high watermark of yep. the Smith. Um, so Joseph Smith is basically receives this divine revelation as directed by the angel Moroni and discovers stumbles upon a golden notebook or golden golden
0: I think it's like it's 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 a it's I think what he stumbles upon is the book of mormon or what inspires him to write the book of mormon yes. and, and the idea is it was written in a kind of ancient egyptian script or an ancient near eastern script and it it provided him with that that kind of effectively that Third Testament which connected native or 1st nation Americans to the Israelites. But the impression I got from this was that those gold plates had never been found. So yes. those, those gold plates are like the, the lost object. That's the, tre- yes. that's the, treasure, that's the treasure that hunt. the church yes. has always been searching for.
1: And the treasure hunt that Mark Hoffman was mm. also obsessed with as yes. well. You learn a bit about his autobiography and his obsession with yes. with treasures and treasure hunting yep. as well. And yes, I think what was so traumatic to the Mormon religion was that this, this white salamander letter... Really aligned their church less with Christian revelation mm. and more with sort of folk tales, and magic, and magic mythology.
0: Specifically, right the um what the Sal- the salamander letter would purports to be a letter from Joseph Smith, which suggested instead of an angel leading him to the books of the Book of Mormon, it was a white salamander. Yes, it was a vision of a white salamander. Yes. So folklore imagery rather than it's such a it's funny because I, I
1: was it a talking salamander?
0: Yeah, I had some weird thing in my mind that. Joseph Smith discovered the Books of Mormon, or the Books of Mormon were found, like, in a railway station locker room. Have you heard this? Like, there was something about, like, a railway station locker room. I don't know why I think that. I couldn't I couldn't say for certain. Yeah, right. Yeah. But it's funny, here's the interesting thing. So, yeah, so the basic premise of it, right, is that, that this guy sells gets ready to sell this letter, which some people suspect is a forgery and which seems pretty provocative, and a whole lot of other documents come with it. And then on the back of that, a series of bombings start to occur. Interesting which which half of the documentary did you like best the first half which was about this kind of deep deep dive into the Mormon textual past mm. or the kind of cause I, I, in some ways I thought the first half was just as fascinating
1: well i think what's more fascinating yeah one strength of this this series is the talking heads and mm. some of the talking heads the professors uh, in particular uh, mark hoffman's contemporaries mm. document dealers mm. document collectors mm. have like a, a lot of really great insights mm. to shed on this this particular It's
0: interesting that a lot of them I kind of wondered like, are you religiously Mormon or culturally Mormon? So it seemed like I wondered if growing up in Salt Lake City and the church feeling so inextricable from your life, like one of the ways in which people dealt with that and dealt with living within the church while not being religious, was through document and object collection that's that right. was the way in which they express their cultural mormonism because a lot of people i like guess i'm wondering a lot of people in the film are, are you mormon yes like to what extent are you mormon
1: yes and it's unusual isn't it to have i suppose people who are religious religious fundamentalists in some ways but also historians mm-hmm. and and i suppose like very painstaking mm-hmm. painstakingly like documenting uh, what is I guess um, mythological, theological kind of and origins? Fairly recent, fairly recent.
0: Um, and on that note, something that really fascinated me was that that uh, like something you learned very early on that I didn't know, which is apparently the the Mormon Church considers itself to have a divine mandate to protect and document its history, mm. which I guess is implicit in a lot of religions, but for the Mormon Church maybe because it's so recent and because it's so localized, it's especially important. So it's just kind yes. of fascinating that you know, in a way, a lot of these people, like in a way, one one of the ways in which Mormons are apparently meant to express their religion is through historical historical work yes. kind of historical curation. Yes, which again, it was interesting, like just the way that linked up with these kind of collectors. Uh, yeah, I, 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 I quite
1: liked. I, I'll, I'll be honest, I quite liked the the pairing of the two. Yeah, me too. I, mean, I,
0: I loved it. I mean, I, I, yeah. that's why I kind of I thought it was kind of almost a, you know, it feels like it could be a top tier Netflix show for me, just because you know sometimes the backstory in these crime dramas can be a little bit bland or a little bit uninteresting but here the the backstory was almost more interesting and more exotic than the crime itself like i almost felt like watching an entire documentary about mormonism about the origins of the church and its mythology it just it seems to be such a poetic and such a perfect expression of american religious fervor generally yes like it's like it, it formalizes an american religious fervor i mean i loved all the shots of the LDS administrative buildings yes like it seems like it has such a kind of distinct style temple square temple square definitely a unique sense of architecture and style yeah
1: yeah it's it it is really interesting subculture Mm. in in america and i think maybe maybe netflix now because they're they're becoming so prolific in their true Mm. crime output the true crime stories increasingly are becoming a prism for exploring larger Absolutely. social and cultural. Absolutely, events. I think we certainly saw that in the the disappearance at the Cecil Hotel, mm. where really the 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 crime itself was just a departure point, just a launching point Absolutely. for exploring L.A. urban geography, I agree. social dynamics, and, politics,
0: and I think also. You know, that that was a series that I felt really marked the start of like the post-classic Netflix, yes, true crime documentary. Post drone. Post drone, absolutely,
1: and <laughs> not that, much drone. Not much not, drone action here. No,
0: so I felt that Cecil Hotel was kind of deliberately deconstructing the drone in the way in which it kind of framed itself. Whereas mm. here, there just aren't that many drone shots. No. Like this feels like much more, much more of a kind of. It feels much more definitively kind of post-classical in the Netflix canon. Like mm. it's, it, it. I mean, though, I guess with with the drone shots came a certain slowness yes. and a certain kind of reflectiveness in the Netflix true crime text. So it could be a little bit lugubrious at times and a little bit drawn out. Whereas yes. this has more of a kind of peppy pacing. It has more of it. It just feels different from those earlier Netflix series. Yes, and as you said, it's it's there's a kind of broader world. It's
1: certainly fast paced, and I think that might partly be accounted for by the origins of this. So mm. it was originally um, pitched as a six-part
0: yeah, right. classic
1: Netflix true crime documentary, mm. but eventually the BBC got involved and it was condensed to three parts.
0: I remember noticing it and I looked it up and thinking, like, that that's, that's really effective, I think, like mm. the kind of punchier, shorter, because Cecil Hotel was only four parts, right?
1: It was, yes, it was not that long. So that, that, that shorter, yeah. kind of
0: punchier style.
1: Again, but it, we, mm. we might be looking, yes, at like the late part mm. or sort of the late work of this Of this true crime genre, where, where, yeah, I think the true crime is—it's—it's about almost everything, but the true crime, or it's, or at least that is just the starting point for exploring these interesting communities. Exactly,
0: it's starting to segue into just a more general documentary approach. Yes, I mean, I I, I I just—it was just you know that first section—it was just so fascinating. I mean, something else I didn't know was apparently you know this boom in Mormon marginalia in the seventies. You know, there were there were all these kind of collectors who would spend all their time in old bookstores and family collections, kind of hunting for precious documents. And yes. I, mean, I, I was like that in itself felt like an amazing film, like Mormon treasure hunters or Mormon document hunters. Like I found myself yeah. asking, like, why, why? how is
1: that not a true? How is that not a, a reality series yeah, yeah. on, on one of the US yeah. networks? Yeah, or how
0: has it not been made into a fictional film? Like it, I, I found myself yeah. thinking generally, like this community seems so ripe yeah. for, you know, yeah. like stories and texts. Mm. Maybe maybe you want to go to utah as well like it just Absolutely. seemed like such a fascinating yeah. subcontinent and especially think about what, what would it be like to grow up in that area and be culturally mormon mm. but not religiously mormon because mm. there are many people who are culturally catholic mm. people who are culturally protestant well it's it's an interesting what community does it, what center. does that look yeah. like
1: because it's a, it's a majoritarian minoritarian religion yes, exactly you know, it's, it basically dominates that state but as soon as you step outside yeah. of it you're suddenly like a, a tiny minority exactly so it'd be a very it, it, i think it captures the surreality of yep. Of, of that majoritarian, minoritarian yes, status that, that Mormons have there as well. Mm. Uh, one criticism of this, based on my reading, now I haven't actually watched the yes, rest. I've of I the, the pilot, the, the second and the third part, yeah. but I, I certainly intend to. Mm. Is that there, there's a few red herrings thrown here right. that are, are designed, I think, maybe to cast some aspersions on the church, well, and maybe possibly defame the church, or at least suggest that the church was somehow involved in these murders and. Yeah, I, I won't. I won't no, give too many spoilers I've actually, away. I've read but, about the case as well. Yeah.
0: I mean, it's interesting, now, isn't it? Because at first, In Yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, at first, it doesn't seem unlikely that the church is involved. In my understanding of the case, and it's a bit of a spoiler here. So just fast forward thirty seconds. Is it? There's two bombs, and the third one goes off in Mark Hoffman's car. Mm. But they somehow deduce from that that he was the perpetrator rather than the target, or well, that's where they get to it. Yeah. So that's a counterintuitive leap to go to at first, and it seems like I imagine they'll explain in more detail how they get to that mm. point. But it does seem very likely, I think, from what you see at first, that the church is behind it somewhere. Like you can see why at the time people might have felt that way. Mm. Well,
1: I think it's also part of the also framing this the framing in this, it, it framing in this okay. documentary right. as well. Um, the le- the more you learn about Mark Hoffman, the the okay. less the church seems. But
0: but you know, it, but even even for the that public, like here. you can see how if only you can see how that the, that that might have been the way the media represented it to the public. At the oh, time. definitely, like I think
1: it's to the wider yeah, American public, the certainly. wider world. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm. So this this was apparently a really huge news story in Utah in the nineteen mm. eighties, but has just one of those stories that just for whatever reason mm. seems to have been lost to time. So, and
0: it seems like with a lot of true crime, like on My Favourite Murder, the So it's like we're getting to a point where we're we're excavating a lot of crime stories that are less well-known or that are kind of specific to a particular place in yes. the community and had a, a, a major kind of resonance there. Mm, maybe but,
1: stories that made waves locally or regionally but not internationally. Not as much elsewhere. So we're, we're really sort of... Netflix themselves, maybe there's a parallel here between the the archive hunters and the Netflix true crime yes, documentarians who are, who are ransacking the past for, yeah. for interesting stories and absolutely. trying to shed trying to shed new revelations like Mark Hoffman mm. on the past, but perhaps their framing itself mm. might be somewhat somewhat fictitious. So, and, that,
0: and that's a nice note to end on. So, yeah, what, what do you? I mean, I think I'm definitely going to watch this. I, I found it I found it fascinating just for the Mormon stuff, oh, yeah, the crime absolutely, stuff. Absolutely, yeah. I'm, I'm a hard in.
1: Yeah, cool. had me at White Salamander. Yeah.
0: Okay, on to our next show. But before we do, Drew, there was just one thing I, I forgot to mention about murder amongst the Mormons. Oh, yeah? Celestial Pursuit. Oh. The tri- remember the Trivial Pursuit game for Mormons? Yes, How yes, incredible yes. was that? <laughs> that was, I, I had to say how amazing oh, that was.
1: Oh, absolutely. And Mark Hoffman Ace got back. them all wrong. Yeah, Got yeah. all right, I, I should know. say, 100%. Because
0: when I was a kid, we had all these different editions of Trivial Pursuit, Silver Screen, Baby Boomer. That's where I first learned the term Baby Boomer. Uh, from yes. Baby Boomer, Trivial Pursuit. But Celestial Pursuit blew my mind.
1: Celestial Pursuit. For the real Mormon aficionado. Anyway,
0: um, I, th- I thought I'd ask you a question just to kick off the next show. Are you a funky punky? <laughs> <laughs> do I like you- to get punky? Yeah, do you like to get punky? <laughs> so, we're talking about the um, the reboot of Punky Brewster. Uh, well, not even really a reboot, it's a continuation. So, the actress who played Punky in the original as a girl is mm. now an adult. Mm. This is a real blind spot. The sins spot. of the punky. Yeah, exactly. Revisited upon <laughs> the punks <laughs> this is a real blind spot for me because this is a this is a show that was kind of i guess big in the late 80s so i was probably yeah. a little bit young to watch it and i never really remember seeing it much on
1: mm. I on think reruns it, i think it had a few reruns okay. um it, it is definitely interesting in my my memory archive i um i have a vague awareness of it it rings a vague bell i remember the name and i'm pretty sure i've seen a few episodes but it's maybe when i was so young that it, it The only thing that really rings a bell is the the picture of the girl and the title. And I almost have no further knowledge.
0: And the girl is uh, Penelope Punky Brewster by Soleil Moon Frye. I love my Moon Frye. I love love Soleil. Um, Yeah, look, so basically the premise in the original is that she is a kid whose parents kind of abandon her. And um, she, I mean, it seems like the remake kind of... is basically retreads to the, the original, but without any of the weird stuff. Yes. So in the original, she's um, it's, it's it sounds pretty dark. Like she's an yeah. abandoned kid. She lives in an abandoned building, um, she moves. She lives in an empty apartment. Yeah. She moves in with an old guy across the hall, and he eventually adopts her. Mm. I mean, this scene. I'm gonna have a bit of a shout out to, <laughs> to um, my favorite murder in the minisodes here. Uh, something I talk about a lot of my favorite murder is the whole latchkey phenomenon. Yes. of Being kids in the 70s and 80s, so it seems that like it speaks to a time when kids were just pretty much left to do anything they wanted. Yes. Like that's when right. kids just. There's a story on my favorite murder about a. um about a kid who's in the backyard and says that there's some weird guy behind a tree and the mother's like drinking and says, just go back out and play. So, you know, like just the kind of, kind of latchkey phenomenon. So yes. it's, it's that, that primal terror that, you know, I think the generation just before ours had, kids who were born in the 70s, yes. are just being left alone to do their own thing. Yeah, their own that's devices. right. And something that kind of blew my mind is apparently the original Punky Brewster is really scary. So I, I was mm. reading that there's like there's a lot of really scary subplots. So, for example... The episode where Punky's best friend almost dies after getting stuck in a fridge during hide and seek.
1: The infamous fridge episode. The fridge i episode. read about that too. Um, a two part. <laughs> Shedding by- light on the risks of the old the old 50s, the, 60s fridge. The
0: old fridge, yeah. Um, a two part episode, The Perils of Punky, in which they Punky and her friends go into a cave. Um, they encounter a guy called Mr. Pieces who's made up of other, of different human body parts stitched together. There's a giant spider that Punky kills with a tomahawk and then Punky's friends turn into skeletons with glowing eyes. So it's is, almost like... Is
1: this is Punky Brewster or
0: It. Exactly. So it's almost like Punky Brewster at the time embodied the horror of the latchkey generation. Yeah. Not a lot of that translates into the remake. No. So this, is, this is about the most polished kind of sanitized remake you could think yes. of. And look
1: it's the, the parents who come with the picture frame.
0: Exactly. And look, you know you know I love my sitcoms, but <laughs> one of my least favourite kind of sitcoms I think is a kind of simulation sitcom where you yeah. have a a contemporary sitcom that just simply repeats all the beats and cues of an eighties sitcom or a nineties mm-hmm. sitcom right down to the laugh track. And this has a very emphatic laugh track. It is a and very insistent laugh it's track. Been, it's been a long time since I've heard the sweet moment sound. Oh, <laughs> there's so many sweet moment sounds.
1: Where do they pull this from? Is it from some sort of synthesizer? Ad-synthesizer? Uh, yeah, exactly. The, you know, the, the, you know, oh shuck sound. The
0: sweet moment patch. Yeah, the sweet moment <laughs> patch. Um, but it's kind of worth thing the simulation sitcom where you have this really insistent um, three-camera setup and, you know, laugh track. But you have this high-def, digital, pristine cleanness, which firstly makes you realise how out-of-date the other stuff is. Yes. But also gives that formulaic quality a kind of sterility rather than making it comforting. So yes. I, thought, I thought the remake of Murphy Brown was a bit like this. Mm. And also the remake of All in the Family. Uh, have, you, have you seen that? Oh, sorry, <laughs> sorry, 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 remake of One Day at a Time. Oh, sorry. okay, have, sure. have you, Okay, so i watched quite a bit of that. It's just, it's just this... it's. It takes as those eighties cues and it takes every and embraces everything that's formulaic about them, but with a contemporary style that makes them seem sterile rather yes. than cozy and comforting. I thought the remake of Will and Grace was a bit like that at times. So it, it just the result is just it's almost too sterile and too polished to be genuinely cosy, It feels or to like be genuinely a, feel good. Feels like
1: an airbrushed sitcom in some ways. Yes, and Every, everyone's just a little too kind and nice, and yeah. there's no edge to this. Did there's you no find? edge,
0: and it's 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 clear that Punky's kind of trying to recover some of the mannerism she had as a kid, yes. but at the same time, the show has completely eviscerated anything that's remotely dark. Yes, so it's almost like. The, the original premise was pretty weird, <laughs> yeah, and there's absolutely. some pretty weird stuff that happens. Some apparently. pretty sinister undertones. So of, it's almost you know, like the, they they have to completely expunge that, yes, and do something that's proportionately sanitized. Yes, it's like that's it, right. it's almost like this. It feels like, and look, and I'm talking a little bit out of my, you know, like I've I've never seen the original, but it feels no, like not true to the original. Not true to the, <laughs> it. It almost feels like this remake represses the original, <laughs> or suppresses what was edgy about the original. In a way that feels like it hasn't got much longevity itself, like mm. it's hard to see how much of a like how much how much life this series could have or how much of a lifespan it could have yes it anything? certainly
1: it certainly feels like a a series of artifices that mm. are strung together mm. now, I think the one thing that does work about this mm. is and this is where the slight darkness of the series comes in although it's pretty
0: I think are you to up at the pancake scene <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, related to that so we we opened this series with Punky recently divorced, mm. and her ex husband has entered her apartment and cooks pancakes. Mm. Her ex husband is played by Freddie Prince Jr.
0: I gotta say, like seeing Freddie Freddie so Freddie, um, <laughs> I got bread in my mind.
1: Well, the pancakes, the pancakes exactly. Freddie Prince Jr. with S- the pancakes. Seeing
0: seeing Freddie Prince Jr. <laughs> with grey hair just like rocked my world. <laughs> I was like, I haven't seen anything about twenty years, so he's still like, I know what you did last summer, and I was like. Wow, like I know what you did like twenty summers ago, yeah. but like well, this summer you probably just read like Jonathan Franzen novels or something. Like it was like he well, looks he he has, looks unusual,
1: old. he has an unusual look, doesn't he? Yeah. At first you're like, oh, who's that? Who's that uh, hefty biker guy? Yeah, and then you're like, oh, wow, that's Freddie Prince Jr. under all that biker uh, biker middle age get up.
0: He has the kind of face that looks perpetually young. So yes, seeing the rest of him age, <laughs> it's just like I just was like whoa <laughs> yeah i think there's something uncanny about someone
1: who's kind of for all intents and purposes kind of vanished from the public yeah eye, although probably hasn't in his in you know certain circles yeah. but,
0: i i can't remember yeah. I, I haven't seen i feel like i haven't seen
1: him in- since she saw that
0: yeah or like was, was, 1997 was, was, Sco- was, was scooby-doo after like i feel like scooby-doo I was think, the last thing <laughs> I think.
1: You you into the Scooby. I did like yeah, Scooby, Scooby Doo. I did quite like Scooby Doo, <laughs>
0: but I just feel like I haven't seen him like advertised anything. No, like, I feel like it's a long no. time since I've heard anything yes. of him.
1: Yes. So he's he's it's certainly it's certainly it's it's a pleasant surprise to see him after sure. you get over the kind of trauma the uncanniness of mm. seeing him. I never her. quite
0: got over it. <laughs> I I never quite well, got, well I, I never guess quite in your, got
1: over it. Your defense he's only in there in the last 10 minutes yep. of the show. Yep. Um I think where this show I think that's the scenes with her and Freddie Prince Jr. Yep. and that unusual intimacy they have and the and the unusual rapport they have and I suppose just that that slight That interesting dynamic Mm. with the the recent ex-husband who still views himself as being Mm. part of the nuclear family, Mm. walking in and out, Mm. unencumbered Mm. through the apartment. I think that worked and I think possibly the strength and where this show might get its legs is Mm. where uh, kind of playing on that kind of comedy of remarriage.
0: Yeah, totally. Totally. And I mean, you know, what I like about like sitcoms is that they are nearly always about eccentric domesticity or like you know expansive domesticity and this show definitely has that conceptually I mean it's primarily about adoption rather than procreation so Punky was adopted and now Punky in turn adopts a girl yes. so it's like the cycle of adoption and she has her own kids and stuff but th- yeah. that's not in the foreground the foreground is this kind of generational cycle of yes. adoption so that
1: and, and her unusual fi- family dynamic uh, now with her husband who's a kind of like a satellite to that the that's what i was going to say girl. so yeah. the
0: adoption stuff plus the ex-husband being semi in the picture hmm. i mean yeah so t- totally it kind of gets i think what makes sitcoms great that yeah. fluid expansive domestic Inclusivity, yeah, you know, inclusivity uh, in in a kind of the way, but
1: I just, I just, I can see a lot of funny episodes with Freddie Prince Jr. You know, helping Punky into the dating game, but secretly still holding a candle for her, and I think that could make an interesting, yes, comic series of comic dilemmas that that could give this, I think, a bit a bit more traction than maybe is indicated, especially in that first two thirds of the pilot.
0: Absolutely, and I think that's that's where it's kind of heading. So, yeah, I mean, I I think I'm probably a provisional in. I'd watch one or two more, but it would have to it would have to develop a bit of edginess pretty quickly because yes. at the moment it is it is a bit sanitized yes. there is a bit of a sheen to it
1: it feels like a, a television series that's that's aimed at you know 12 year olds well, 11 I, year olds it feels like it's aimed at kids and maybe like their parents to watch together
0: yeah exactly because
1: like, that might take the edge off
0: i'm not bit. sure that it i'm not sure it would appeal to either demographic like to yeah. pa- i think both to parents and kids it would seem naive. Yes. In different ways.
1: Mm, do you think kids would know Freddie Prince Jr.?
0: No, no, or <laughs> Punky. But I mean, I think I think a lot of kids would find the comedy kind of pretty daggy. Yes. But so would parents. Like it's. It's,
1: it's certainly daggy. It's certainly daggy. It's, certainly, it's, it's, <laughs> it's very. It's pretty lame. The comedy. I mean, yeah, who would find this funny?
0: No. So I I can't imagine. I I'm not. Sh- I I kind of feel like the most likely demographic, is parents who are nostalgic for the 80s and want to show their kids what good television is. So they get them to watch it with them and they watch it grudgingly together and then they go back and watch the original probably still a bit grudgingly and then the experiment kind of ends after one season. Like that That's how it
1: kind of feels. So watch the pile of this, yeah. the pile of the original... Both parties end up slightly disappointed and aggrieved, and, and, d- then and they the they experiment d- ends. Decide to go their, decide to go their
0: separate ways. Like that's kind of
1: so a really painful experience if you want to share with your kids. <laughs> yep, um, a lesson about disappointment. Then perhaps watch the pilot. Of both yeah, and the well, I,
0: and, I, and I feel like especially that sense like you know back in my day this was good television. This this will, this will be a bonding experience. This will show us what television was back in my day. <laughs> but then both parties will be a little bit. I think it's probably like the same kind of like in the same way that parents might show their kids a sequel to coming to America america yes. like this is something that was meaningful to me yeah it's now been remade for your world let's share it together oh <laughs> and then go back and watch the original and like okay i can see where it's coming from but we still live in different worlds <laughs>
1: yes that's right so uh, so a TV show. Kind of it certainly doesn't bridge the generational divide
0: no and it's maybe like, exacerbates it. or maybe maybe the other demographic is like it's Freddie it's, Prince Junior heads, yeah, yeah, Prince heads, but also for those adults who you know, seem to be a sizable proportion of Gen Xs who are still suffering the traumatic aftermath of Punky <laughs> Brewster. So for those people who've had like who've been dreaming about the fridge episode for decades, You're working through that trauma. This month. is therapy. The show, like the show, the show, is right. a, the show feels a bit like a therapist talking to you. All is well. Yes, all right. is well. That's right. And like the, the, the fridge in there. The fridge is really unthreatening. <laughs> the fridge does not harm anyone. The fridge anyone. does not harm anyone. You don't. You don't <laughs> fridges to,
1: have come a long way you, since the
0: eighties. You don't need to be afraid they of the now fridge. Now open both ways. Exactly. You don't have to be afraid of the fridge anymore. <laughs> the fridge, the fridge is not your enemy. <laughs> so for, for for Prince heads, yep. people are
1: working through eighties <laughs> fridge trauma, yep. and maybe an unpleasant father daughter bonding experience. Yep. Go for it,
0: and I'm actually thinking <laughs> the fridge is quite foreground. So, like that scene where there's, Freddy lot, Fritz, there's a lot happening around yeah, the fridge. People when, are orbiting that fridge. When Freddie Fridge Junior. first meets Punky, he has the fridge door open. I mean, did, you, did you say Freddie Fridge Junior. Freddie Fridge Junior. <laughs> when Freddie Fridge Junior. has the fridge open, Freddie Fridge Junior. Freddie Fridge Junior. When Freddie Fridge Junior. has the fridge open, he is he is uh, <laughs> Punky. So I feel I feel like I feel like the ultimate demographic are Gen X's who, as soon as I watch this that fridge is going to be a problem. And, but the show and assures <laughs> you that it's not. The fridge is not an and the, issue.
1: Those who are really scared of fridges, I want to know the name for those who are yeah, terrified a, of fridges. Let's just, fridge, go, just Google it. Fridge, phobic, fridge phobics. So people who are phobic of fridges yeah. are called, according to Google... <laughs> This is scintillating potting. Coming
0: up, coming up. Caldophobia, um, like cold. Oh, look, your, phone, your phone's actually not working now.
1: <laughs> There's cactus in this room. I, I'm going to look up
0: fear of... My phone's fine. I'm going to look up fear of fridges. Fear of fridges. I got garlic naan bread. Um Oikophobia. <laughs> Oik- but it's okay oikophobia it's a little bit general it's a fear of household appliances such as toasters ovens or fridges
1: ah yeah. so those that um that other series we looked at where the toasters don't
0: don't do that that series was great <laughs> next was great don't bring next into this I, I i stand by next i stand by next so i stand by next a
1: double bill for yeah. the oikophobia oikophobia qr yep you can watch next
0: yep to get over your uh, toaster phobia and then (laughs) punky Brewster for the fridge so for all the for all the oikophobes (laughs) that punky brewster unleashed in the 80s this is closure (laughs) this is this is therapy this is your moment (laughs) to see fridges in a a comforting in a safe space in a clear setting all right so so (laughs) (laughs) brady fridge junior fans yeah oikophobes
1: Unpleasant father daughter bonding experiences. You're going to love it. it. You're going to love it. All right. So, Billy, our third show tonight is I think that this might be up your alley because I know you're really getting into superheroes and the superhero universe at the moment.
0: Okay. So, can I just say on that note, um, we watched the pilot of WandaVision a while back for the show. I continued watching it and I loved it. I really enjoyed it and for some reason that seems to have triggered Andrew that I like a Marvel show I'm not quite sure it's an issue for him I think he's got to work through it man Marvel can be good well you're a I'm Marvel all ab- now. I'm all about the fourth phase I think the first three phases were quite good Yes. The fourth phase is when it's happening. Do you know, what do you know about Vision's backstory? Or? Oh, well, I know, well, I don't want to tell you what I know because it'll ruin what's happened <laughs> at the end of this story. I mean, I mean, the way they've retconned Wanda is, I, it's amazing. Actually, in all seriousness, I love WandaVision and I think Andrew should watch it. It's really great. <laughs> but, so, well,
1: well, you love Marvel. Will you similarly love DC?
0: Well, you know, I'm all about the Arrowverse. I'm really into the Arrowverse. So, yeah, look, i I got to say... Um, I'm not sure Superman is really my thing. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not sure I've got a lot with Superman. Um... Especially Superman with gritty Midwestern realism. Let, <laughs> let, let, let's talk through the premises. So basically Superman and Lois, it's going for a kind of realistic... That's the show, by the way, Superman and Lois. Mm. And the fact that, so, you know, obviously it's referencing the title of Lois and Clark, The New Adventures of Superman. Mm. By reversing that, it seems to be um, indicating it's reversing the tone as well. Ah. Ah. So whereas that show is kind of campy, funny, silly, this is a really serious, I guess realistic, inverted commas, take on Superman. So mm. we briefly learn, you know, we hear a little bit about Superman's mythology... But for the most part... It's about his marriage to Lois. Mm. Um, the tensions or complications in their marriage, given that he has to pop off from time to time to save the world. Mm. And the tensions with him and his sons, given that they don't know he's a superhero yet and one of them will probably inherit his powers. Um, mm. In this version, he has two sons. He has twins. I'm not sure if that's the case in every... And it's also, obviously, it's Superman and Lois post-marriage, post-marriage. Yes, Which is yes. a really big difference yes, from everything else right. in the that's Superman right. universe. So when I
1: think Superman, I think Dow relationship drama.
0: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is basically like... If a Superman film was like directed by, um, who's the guy who directed Midnight Express, Midnight like Midnight Special? Je- uh, oh, Oliver like, Stone. No, 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 um, no, not Midnight Special. Um, he directed Take Shelter.
1: Take Shelter. Oh yes, yes, yeah, that, yes. That guy. Yes, that guy. <laughs> yes. Yeah, that, yes, guy. that good, guy. Good, good <laughs> director. But he,
0: it's like it's like him doing it's like him doing yes. Superman. So basically, it's kind of
1: like if you liked if you liked the relationship or the sexual tension of yep. Lois and Clark, yep. and you liked the high school setting yep. of Smallville. Yep. We're going to give you the relationship, divorced, of the sexual tension yeah. and the high school drama yeah. divorce to the high school. It's
0: like, if you liked anything about Superman, <laughs> we're not going to give you any of it. Like, that's basically it. And look, it's, it's look. this is an interesting series. Like, yeah, just to break down, we hear briefly about Superman's powers. We cut to him in a marriage with Lois. They're happily married, but it says strains because he has to go off and save the world from time to time. They've got two twins. One is like a star quarterback. One's a misfit. They're anxious about which one's inherited Superman's powers. And there's some other tension around um superman and his property we haven't quite discovered yet there's Mm. also a global tension Mm. and also superman doesn't seem to be extremely wealthy in the real world so i mean i think
1: you know really mm. the real superheroes here are working parents
0: yeah (laughs) exactly so that's that's part of where it's going so look this is an interesting show like i kind of feel the show is really conflicted about what it wants to be so Mm. like on the one hand you know, like superheroes are quite a right-wing genre in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. I feel like it kind of wants to reclaim Superman as a Democrat. So his wife mm-hmm. Lois is she's like she's she's pro unions, she's pro you know raising the minimum wage, she's pro freedom of the press. So it wants to align mm-hmm. him with a kind of Democrat sensibility and present right. him as progressive. Do
1: you think Superman feels the burn?
0: Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. But on the other hand, the show is so Republican in its outlook. Like it pretty much presents being a father as the ultimate superhero, like being a Midwestern white father on a property mm. as the ultimate superhero mm. kind of gesture. At the same time, like on the, like that tension, I think, is also in, it, it, it also influences how Superman is presented professionally. So on the one hand, yes. Superman's almost like a first responder. He's like yes. the ultimate first responder, which means like a lot of first responders, he lives in precarity, he's near the poverty line. It's yes. like a tribute to first responders. But on the other hand, he's like a saviour for the racist white police force like he's like he's like a he's like a kind of one-man police yes. force so it's weird it's like but
1: Clark Kent is also put upon journalist yes suffering from the precarity of the modern white collar job market exactly mm. so so he experiences both blue and white collar precarity
0: white collar precarity that's nice but yeah but yeah so I feel like both professionally and emotionally like the show kind of wants it's almost like the show think like conceptually and narratively, the show kind of presents Superman as like a Democrat, as a progressive, yes. but effectively and emotionally, it's kind of squarely Republican in yes. the way in which it presents him. So yes. it's, it's, it's an interesting kind of tension. I mean, what, what did you think? Like, what did you think? I, I mean, I have other stuff to say, well, but what it, did you think?
1: The show that this actually reminded me of mm. in a little bit, in, and they're very dissimilar shows, mm. is that, that show, that comedy mm. in the early <laughs> noughties, Ed, where, yes. you know, Big City Lawyer... Decides to downsize his life because he had some sort of mm. incident happen to him in the big city, and decides mm. to move back to Stuckeyville. Uh. <laughs> and he's involved in a lot of uh, yeah. a lot of um, interesting happenstances with the, mm. the residents of Stuckeyville. This is Superman and Lois. You know, you know, working parents, high profile jobs, mm. high stress jobs, yeah. and then all of a sudden, Superman. They're downsizing the workforce, and Superman and Lois decide to ultimately leave Metropolis and move back to Smallville.
0: So, yeah, and, and look, I, I get that. I, I agree with it to some extent. So
1: The Smallville-Stuckyville yes, analogy. Continuity,
0: yeah. So, yeah. yeah, exactly. And it's like shows like, you know, more broad Northern Exposure, Seed Change, even Twin Peaks, mm. about characters in the big smoke who come to a small town. Mm. I guess what makes it a bit different for me, and what moves this ultimately into the Republican camp, <laughs> is like just a kind of unremitting seriousness to it so like what what am i one of my pet hates in contemporary television is seriousness and we've we've talked about this like seriousness is different from profundity yes like i mean i think i always use a, a great example of it is like a show like american crime story people versus oj simpson like that show is profound and it deals with profoundly significant themes and concepts mm. but it has a comedy a camp a sprightliness a, a perkiness
1: a lightness on its feet yeah
0: whereas and look I don't think this is turgid either like when like i don't think like lois and superman and lois is too but not in defending jacob territory yet (laughs) yet
1: not quite yet
0: but but there is a kind of seriousness and a seriousness to the way to its kind of self-regard that i that for me makes it a bit different from ed and just i found i found it like the concept interesting actually but i found the delivery tedious and it is a kind of right-wing seriousness it's like it almost presents seriousness as the province, as a special possession of the kind of... The white family man, the possessor of hearth and home, the Mm. middle American, Mm. you know, patriarch. So I guess I found the film kind of... serious, like, you know, a bit jarring, maybe in an interesting way, maybe not. Mm. Um, You have all this talk about like, oh, you know, unions, minimum wage, free press, you know, blue-collar, white-collar precarity, and yet there's this real... The seriousness is completely right right wing i mm. think i just you know apart from that just a bit boring to watch like it's it's very slow well, and this is this so is... the kind of pilot that was going to be an hour instead of 40 minutes so yes. you think this is it insists upon itself as an, <laughs> yes. hour, as an
1: hour long pilot look a lot is packed into this 1 hour plot yeah. wise but it it is absolutely leaden mm. i was bored senseless yeah i kept i was clock watching it's like it's like <laughs> i only, kept pausing oh, and saying well, how far two I minutes it? have gone by
0: i mean and, and after a while like it's a bit stupid like su- <laughs> like superman trying to balance like two things here are two things that i think are a bit stupid like superman trying to balance the responsibilities of being a superhero with the responsibilities of being a father and also like su- like superman's son the golden child like i mean he- the twist of it spoiler is that it's superman's angsty son he's yes. inherited his superpower the emo son is a superhero not the yes. golden child but superman and his wife speculate that the golden child at the first they speculate the golden child has inherited the superpowers because he's a star quarterback yes like that's that kind sort of, of show. the show yeah. like yeah and even though the two boys are really different they're both defined in terms of how they relate to football so yes. it's like it's a very corn-fed yeah. white bread yeah. seriousness yeah uh, yeah, there's
1: there's often a kind of enjoyment to those to those slightly right-leaning shows, like a, just sure. a, a pure kind of sure. uh, propulsive energy. Sure. Sometimes, like for example, um, the. Friday Night Lights. I'm thinking yep. of, which is you know, which is kind of gleefully Republican in some ways a- in have its sensibility. Seen, have
0: you seen the Amy Schumer sound up for that? Do you still like being the coach? <laughs> <laughs> this is really, the really good yeah. Connie Britton. Yeah, yeah
1: but that, this lacks even that. This still lacks even the just the the yep. honesty. It's it's a show that's really suspicious of enjoyment, I- and it seems like every character. I don't know, but you know, every character has resting bitch face. Yeah, yeah, and, and every- <laughs> from the from Lois, to Superman at yep. times. Certainly the the teenage sons, the uh, the other kind of. Draco Malfoy type, you know, residents they need in and Smallville, and
0: that makes sense because always beneath this this kind of seriousness, what it always is at heart is a sulk. Yes, like it's 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 a sulk dressed up as seriousness. Yes, so it's just like, well, say what you want, but no one knows what serious is. You know, no one you can have whatever belief you want, but only a conservative can know what it means to be really serious yes. or what true seriousness is yes. or what it really means to protect mm. people or protect a group of people. So it's, it's got that kind of subtext, um, which, you know, among other things, is not, not very kind of dynamic for a superhero film. No. And also because part of what this film, series has going for it, sorry, I should said series, is novelty Yes. I mean, it's the novelty of seeing Superman and Lois together. And that, that novelty turns into banality so quickly. It does. That it's almost like the premise of the show is dead in the water. Yes. A
1: bit, don't you think? Well, it it really fast forwards through mm. or montages yeah. their whole courtship, yeah. it's their, like, the it's birth like of their kids. It's
0: Superman is slow television. <laughs> yeah. In the first
1: yeah. five minutes, it r- races through that mm. and then hones in on like really dull interpersonal Relationships yep. in in Smallville. Yeah, oh, yeah. It's, I, I mean, like, are you excited though about the Arrow crossover?
0: Well, you know, I've, having <laughs> having seen no Arrow, I'm, I'm imagining it'll be very good. <laughs> I mean, it's funny, isn't it? Like, I just, I wonder. Who about, do you
1: think would win between Arrow and Superman?
0: I think Superman would kill him with seriousness. <laughs> I mean, it makes me wonder, like, is this? How are people watching it? Like, is this the kind of television? That works best when you're watching it in transit or on a mobile device because to sit in front of it on a screen i mean it's so Mm. it is so kind of i think this is yeah
1: i think this is a series that works really well when you're watching something else yeah i agree like facing in a different direction yeah
0: yeah yeah i i I was doing that actually like i was watching i I was you know it's amazing i was watching this incredible bowl of caramello Habry eggs. Oh, wow. I got out of the fridge. That was the like, best part of the series. That was delicious. Was so, like the bit, the egg scene. The bit, <laughs>
1: watch the egg scene, guys. Yeah, you know?
0: the bit in the series <laughs> where I bit into that first caramello egg and knew that I had three or four more to go and I wasn't full yet. That was amazing. That part of the series. <laughs> Look out for that. Yeah, Look that was incredible. That. Yeah. yeah, and yeah, I mean, I think it happens about. I think it happens about when superhero is looking serious, like Superman is looking seriously off into space. <laughs> That's when it happens. I mean, it's funny, like. I remember like Smallville, like being pretty on the nose at times, but at least yeah. it was like perky, yeah, and at least it was silly, and at least it had a kind of at least one of the characters spark. got
1: into an awesomely interesting like, you know, illegal sex cult too. Yeah, well, that's true. Yeah, <laughs> I don't think any of the characters here would ever let themselves do that. Do you think they'll ever be <laughs> an Al- too, way too boring? Do you
0: think they'll ever be an Alice <laughs> and Mac um, cameo in this? That could be interesting. <laughs> that would be great. A Nexium prison? Yeah, <laughs> Superman actually turns out to be a Nexium. Yeah. <laughs> That'd be great, su- su- Superman. Superman says to um, Lois, "You now call me Vanguard." And she's like, "What now?" It's like, wh- "Where have you been, Superman?" Like, "Have you been?" Like, she's like, "Have you been saving the day?" It's like, "I oh, was just being time with Keith. <laughs> just being time with Keith. Keith- K- K- Kentos, Kentos, <laughs> Clarkos. <laughs> yeah, if they bring Nexium into it, that will probably be that. That will. That'll that's be one highlight. way. One way to jazz it up. The yeah, highlight. it was just kind of like. I mean, it's funny, isn't it? Like, it, there is a kind of." weird defeatism to it it's like you know the world is changing we're scared and all we have to offer is seriousness yes that's so true it's kind of like it's, maybe it's, this
1: is the modern republican party yep we've yep. lost our jobs we've retreated to a small isolated farming community yep and uh we're scared of change it's like
0: I'm, who's who's the guy <laughs> we are maintaining
1: this nuclear family despite the fact that our our son might probably is non-conforming yes
0: exactly <laughs> I, I and look, the only character i kind of liked um, was the angsty son who oh. who expresses fairly early on that he thinks Superman is boring? Yes, but he's obviously <laughs> going to come around. Yeah. Now it's his dad; he's going to come around. I mean, it reminds me also
1: it'll be, be great. Like if they really make that a, a plot point, yeah. how boring Superman
0: is, yeah. because he really is a very, very boring. Yeah, and character. look, the show is doing that part of it well. <laughs> <laughs> like that part of it, the show is totally nailed the how, boredom. How do you think oikophobes will react to this show? <laughs> That's interesting. Well, <laughs> it's it, it could go either way because like a, a lot of what Superman does in this show is just lift white. Goods above oh, the ground yes. there's a lot of just like lifting yes so it, it could be comforting to oikophobes <laughs> that uh, you know like a washing machine or a dryer can be lifted mm. i hope we don't get cancelled for joking about <laughs> but it could be it could be comforting to oikophobes that that superman can lift these things far away but then again if i were an oikophobe and i see this guy like carrying a fridge above my head I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go full punky on that. <laughs> like, what if? What if that? Fri- I, I've been terrified about falling into fridges. What if the fridge falls onto me? Like, so I feel like Superman is. It's a. It's a. Uh-huh. Oikophobes ring in. Like ring in. <laughs>
1: I think we're going to create a new a new segment the the corner oikophobe, oikophobe corner, oif, oikophobe oikophobe corner. corner. yeah yep. that's okay. right so oh,
0: this that, one that could that could that could go downhill really quickly <laughs> <laughs> we could get some real real kickback about that so I think
1: I think this is acceptable for oikophobes but yep. um yep. probably not for really anyone else I
0: think I think it's it's also good for people who are kind of like good television phobes <laughs> like if you have a fear of really entertaining television. This is going to be great for you. Yeah,
1: you don't like high prestige, good TV. Yeah, or you don't like like really good B, grade, B sort of yeah. great genre, exciting. Yeah, you know, like if you're looking for something in the, that uncanny valley, yeah, um, where it's
0: not exciting or profound. Yeah. yeah.
1: So I think maybe if you're looking for that, yeah. then then go for this. Yeah, exactly. And uh, <laughs> so I, I guess what the real takeaway from yeah. this is that Marvel hmm. fourth phase,
0: yeah, love it. Thumbs up. And DC fourth phase, yep. Thumbs down. I'm not sure it is the fourth phase of DC. I'm not sure those things correlate, but yeah, I, I can see the comparison. Yeah, have you watched any of WandaVision after episode one? Um, I, I I intend to. Yeah, it's great. It's great. Yeah, watch out for um, watch out for the witch.
1: Yeah, yeah. I think for- you always got to be skeptical about someone like like jumping on the Marvel bandwagon, like. 10 years after it's kind of already kind of reached its zenith. but um yeah for those people like yeah, yeah. that's cool that's no, cool you know, no you no can...
0: i get that and i mean i guess it's it's interesting isn't it how some people once they've got a fixed mindset about something it can never change so <laughs> i mean i thought that was the whole point of you know our contemporary media environment you when you change you should change and that's good but yeah no i agree like change is always bad stick to what you know stick to what's traditional you sound a lot like superman <laughs> so are, are you an in and out um look i think it's oh pretty- come on, <laughs> come on! Don't don't do this. I don't. Think, I think don't maybe if th- I was,
1: if I was going to shamelessly. 10 years after the event, jump on the DC mm. bandwagon, I might do it. Yeah, right. But I'm, I've got too much integrity. Yeah. So um, for that reason, I'm out.
0: I agree. And I, I think I'm out too, just because I don't like it when people jump on the bandwagon of a franchise for no reason, without any artistic or aesthetic discernment. So in the same way that I could tell something really was special was happening from the beginning of my, uh, WandaVision, this time around, I feel like I don't see that there. So I'm not going to pursue it just for the sake of pursuing it. I have an open mindset in that way. Okay, so when we do this podcast, we often talk about, you know, televisual skills, the Mm. skills that directors and writers bring to it. And you're now going to talk to us about a very specific set of skills.
1: Skills I've worked on over many years. years, Skills Skills that make me a nightmare.
0: For people like you. Like you, you. okay. (laughs) So take us, you take it. Yeah,
1: Billy, you ready to get taken?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So we're going to find out how Brian Mills Got those skills. Yes,
1: that's right. That's right. Yeah. How Brian Mills came to Brian Mills. Yeah, exactly. So Taken is an action thriller TV series. It is obviously based on the Taken film series. Mm. So it's an origin story mm. for the character of Brian Mills, mm. who's uh, played by Clive Standen here, mm. famous from the Viking series. And this character obviously was famously played by Liam Neeson in yeah. the trilogy. So it's pretty unenviable shoes that Clive Standen yeah. has to stand in. Uh, it was commissioned straight to series in 2015.
0: It looks like it's produced by Luc Besson. Luc Besson is still involved in some way.
1: Yes, that's right. That's right. So uh, it was cancelled after, I believe, two seasons. Yeah,
0: I had no idea there was even one... I, uh, well, yes, I, I, I had no idea that it was even a second season before we, we got into it.
1: Yeah, that's right. So the actual premise for for Brian Mills becoming Brian Mills. Well, he's already in some ways Brian Mills when mm. we start there, so that's a little disappointing. <laughs> he's already a former Green Beret.
0: I loved um, I, lo- I loved the way it has that same slightly obnoxious moralism as the opening. So, like, it opens with him on a train. Um, he makes a comment about how bad the Taliban is. Then he forces someone else on the train to look at how beautiful the American countryside is. Yes, that's right. So it's like, and then he talks about a war hero. Like, it's, it's got that same, like, you know, just like, moralistic edge, which, yes. is, which is quite enjoyable in those opening scenes. Yes. So,
1: really, I think what, what's – we don't really learn about how Brian Mills got, got his skills because he already has them. Yep. Like, he's the already Brian of, Mills at the sk- beginning. The <laughs> really, this is an origin story about his trauma. Yep. And what drives him. Yes. In his quest. And yes. I think – Oh, yeah. We, we, I think we both know how we feel about that yes. kind of trauma. Yes. Theory. So, what happens in this is Mills' sister is killed in a train shootout and with two persons he believes are random terrorists. Yes. Um, later, he's he's uh, shocked to discover that uh, there's there's involvement here um, related to his earlier service mm. in in Panama or Colombia, one of those yeah, countries, somewhere around there, one of those loser countries, yeah. and uh, it somehow involves the I suppose the uh, cartel operative, yep. the wonderfully named Carlos Carlos Mejita. Yeah,
0: exactly. <laughs> and uh, so the so the um. <laughs> The original film's paranoia about the Middle East is now a paranoia about South America. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Yes. I, I, I also loved how the original film, The Paranoia, extended to just France as well. Yes, that's Any, right. Anywhere outside America. <laughs> yes, anywhere. Brian
1: Mills is, is terrified of his daughter travelling outside of America, including Paris. And it, you know, guess what? His fears were completely well-founded. And
0: something I remember, whereabouts in America is he from in the original?
1: Uh, well that's a good question. I'm but not even I sure whether like, it's specified. I feel like
0: if it's like he'd be afraid of his daughter travelling like outside his city. Yes, that's right. Like I feel like that's right. domestic travel <laughs> will probably be an issue as well. Yes.
1: Yep. So much I think of the Brian Mills character and his enjoyment is based on his, his age. And yep. you know, his conservative attitude, his world weary attitude mm. is partly based on the fact that he's actually seen everything, yep. he's encountered everything, yep. he's he's diffused every single problem yep. that could possibly arise. Mm. Um, you know, he's defeated every terrorist. Yep. Yep. He's, he's fought every single battle. He's acquired every single potent, potential, you know, uh, skill in conflict resolution. I remember
0: mean, you once had a really good point too. Like we went to see some, or no, you went to see some Liam Neeson film that was kind of openly comic recently. Yes. What was it called? Like uh, I can't remember exactly. But, but, but the but point you made was that and that was a really good point, I thought, that the Liam Neeson action films are inherently comic. Yes. Because you have this kind of classically trained actor, stage yes. actor, who, you know, in the 90s is in films like Husbands and Wives. He's in Woody yes. Allen films. Rob Roy. Rob Roy, exactly. All of a sudden, in an American action thriller. So the incongruity of Liam Neeson yes. is inherently comic to begin with. I think that's... And, and, as ca- well as, and campy. Yes. yes.
1: And all the fact that he's, you know, in his mid-60s yes. now and he's beating up, you know, twenty you know muscled 20-year-old drug yep. dealers. yeah. You know, I th- I think
0: there's know, an edge of absurdity. There's, a, there's to certainly that makes of it enjoyable. It's it's it's, it's right wing in the most enjoyable way. Definitely it's the antithesis of Lois and Superman and Lois.
1: Definitely. Yeah. Also, the fact that he is obviously you know meant to be an American ex serviceman with a really thick Irish brogue. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so a lot of a lot of that inadvertent comedy, I think, is certainly not present in this. Well,
0: in this particular I I kind of felt like the guy who plays Brian Mills here was a bit like like Jay Courtney in the Die Hard films. Yes. Like he just he doesn't seem to get. <laughs> that edge of absurdity yes. and that edge of campiness to it. Like, he plays it so seriously yes. and so blandly. It's, it's a bit of a buzzkill, yes. I felt for the Brian Mills character. I just mm. – it's very serious. It's very lugubrious. It's not – you know, it's peppy. It moves along. It's not, you know, it's not slow. But I just – I felt like he was a bit of a – I felt like he didn't really get the character. No. He didn't, didn't get what people like about the no. character.
1: I think it, it is obviously a very unenviable role. Yes, and Absolutely he doesn't have an Irish accent so that I don't also, really know how that works did you but feel
0: he kind of it was almost like he started to approximate Liam Neeson a bit as he proceeded <laughs> like towards perhaps yeah. I think like the second and third take in films I remember like it's almost like part of what happens in those films is that Liam Neeson's voice is like remediated and relayed and appropriated in all these different ways. Yes. Like it's, you know, people adopt it, other people use it. Yes, I feel like something like that could start happening here. Like we'll start to hear Liam Neeson echoes. Yes, or Liam Neeson surrogates. Yes, as the series goes along.
1: There's, there's certainly like I think in the second and third, take, or second certainly the second there was an acknowledgement about it, the absurdity of this and the yeah. incongruity of it as well. And there's some there's some great campy moments in the yeah. second one, which is not a great movie. And like, for example, you know, oh, see the grenade on your right. Pull the pin,
0: Yeah, <laughs> Yeah, and also, like, you feel in the first one that it was so perfect, Liam Neeson's delivery, that no film could match it. So the kind of, the second and third films just kind of recombined it. Yes. And it feels like this is kind of doing... Towards the end here, I almost felt like he was starting to echo Liam Neeson and do a similar thing.
1: I think that would that would mm. have actually been stronger here. Mm. if There was some sort of deliberate echoing of the voice, mm. the, the the monologue, the diatribe, yeah. something where this guy speaking. He's, That's he true. barely says anything. When, when like I say echo, mute. like
0: I mean just more like small details of delivery. No, there, there's no, there's no, there's no. Sense of the kind of Baroque Shakespearean pronouncements you get no. in the original... Like, the original film is, like, one monologue after another. Yes. You come to a country, you take advantage of the system. <laughs> like, none of that stuff is here. I mean, I, I kind of... I felt it was all pretty flat. So, like, I felt like the only relationship that really resonated was, like, him and his sister mm. or, you know, him and the, the daughter... a daughter in it, like... You know, like, everything was kind of flat. I also, like... I didn't really like the framing device, the FBI narrative mm. that intrudes the whole way. So the whole... Mm. The whole way through... So basically, the FBI seemed to know that these assassins... So the, the, the subplot is Brian Mills killed someone on a Green Beret expedition, this is the plot. They take revenge by killing his daughter, sorry, his sister, and then he he goes off for revenge himself, right? Yes. But the whole time the FBI are monitoring it and commenting on it. Yes, that And was it, weird. it just really takes you out of the action. Like it yes. feels like there's already another pair of eyes watching the show. <laughs> Why am I needed? Like what what am I doing here? Like these people are watching that it and commenting a, on it in real time.
1: It 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 really diffuses the tension, doesn't it? Every time there's a there's a slightly suspenseful scene, they cut to the FBI observing, watching him. it and
0: talking about it. It'd be yeah. like if in taken like oh it was all on CCTV the whole time <laughs> and someone else's. It's like. It's like having a live audience or something who's doing the work for you. Yeah, it's like, it's, it's bizarre. I'm, I'm not needed here. I think they're got building... have some chocolate eggs, <laughs> some caramel <laughs> eggs.
1: I'll just let you keep observing yourself and enjoying yourself. Yeah, I'll,
0: yeah. I'll yeah. go and get them out of the fridge and not go in the fridge, but just get <laughs> them out of the fridge. Yeah, careful. Yeah, I know. Careful. Yep. Are,
1: uh, yes. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I thought that was that was a strange concept. Yeah. And I think again, this is one of those shows. I, I think in the same vein as
0: Clarice. Mm that's oh careful <laughs> careful that's I quite that's, like it's yeah. changing
1: the genre I feel like of you're, kind of, you're, you're
0: dropping a couple of shows that you know I like like <laughs> Next and Clarice I feel like it's a, and, and WandaVision I just, just, I just I see what's happening here tonight
1: I, I think this yeah I don't I don't really like that that sort of Wolf and Sheep's clothing element over here where you take a genre, which is a, it should be a revenge tragedy, mm. and turn it into a kind of conspiracy thr- thriller. I, I, I don't think... uh, Clarice did that as well, turning it from a kind of yeah. horror thriller into a conspiracy type see, drama. He, thing that... I don't care for it. I'm not really interested in these governmental exp- conspiracies. Perhaps this is driven by the imperatives of American studio yep. television production where everything needs to be so US-centric mm. that we can't go overseas, we can't have foreign actors I mean, here.
0: I guess the way I felt. I in Clarice, that didn 't diminish the horror for me, whereas here I feel it really does diminish. The action and these—I mean, I thought the action set pieces are pretty bad here. Too. Yes, they it's are. All, it's all just shootouts. Yeah, like the original one is basically Liam Neeson yeah, doing like hand-to-hand martial yeah. arts combat. Like yeah. this is all just bland it's shootouts. Him, it's him kicking people in the nuts, breaking yeah. some arms. Yeah, exactly. Like, you know, this is like a really slamming people into you
1: know telegraph poles. Yeah. Like
0: you come to a country, you take advantage of the system. <laughs> yeah, whereas this Marco, this, Marco, this, Marco from yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Whereas this is yeah. this is more just like. It's like kind of like an executive style or something. Like it's yes. it's 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 bland. And and again, like the main guy, like there's just is zero charisma. So, you know, Brian Mills already has the skills, mm. but he doesn't even have the same personality. So really it begs the question, what is there to differentiate this character from any other generic action?
1: Protagonist. Well, there's not. There's, nothing there's not. At all. There's, there's, yeah, I think even the xenophobia of the original Taken, which I guess is part of the baked-in Republican ideology yeah, of, of it, which is which is a kind of enjoyable in a kind of campy way. As well. It's well. hyperbolized. Yeah, exactly. It's, 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 exactly, hi- it's right.
0: hyperbolized to an enjoyably ludicrous degree. Where it's exactly. here, it's just kind of casually there. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> even <laughs> yeah. here,
1: it could have it could have become ludicrous in an yeah. enjoyable way yeah. with Carlos Mejita Mahi, yeah, yeah. and. Me, 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 it's, a, it's
0: a good name for a taken franchise it is i
1: thought oh this is going to be great we're yeah. going to end up in colombia yeah he's going to go one-on-one one mm. with this kind of you know mm. drug lord mm. uh, colombian stereotype mm. instead it's a real anticlimax i yeah. don't know
0: no so yeah. i i agree i mean i i love the first film obviously like yeah. you, it's a great film and the second two i think are pretty fun too yeah. this just seems like a completely different thing it's only it's the same name i mean i thought even like you know like a long form revenge narrative, mm. you've got to be really rooting for the main character, even when they do crazy stuff. Yeah. And it's got to be visceral and it's got to mm. be really intense. I don't think this really sets it up here. No, it like doesn't. It's, no. You, you, you gotta be, it's,
1: there's got to be brutality in the original crime. Yeah. There's got to be some sort of. And he's got to be really put upon. You've got to really it's be brutal identify with him. And provocative and
0: kind of yes. nasty. And it's got to be enough to keep you coming back to, to see how he deals with it. Yes, that's And right. I don't think there's any of that really here. No. So I, I found it like an okay watch, yeah. I guess, but just completely dissociated. It's, it's, I don't
1: think this is terrible. No, it's certainly watchable, it's watchable and it's certainly it's certainly a little bit more high octane than the other couple of series mm. that we've panned to, to tonight. Yeah. But it, it, yeah, it has pace. It certainly has pacing, but, but
0: the action isn't great. No. no. And
1: a lot of it is just centered on a character that who's who's grief-stricken, who's he dull, leaden, total, kind of, totally he kind of limps around this series I mean in, it,
0: it, I mean you feel like this guy would never have flown to Paris. No. He just would have No. stayed at home and I don't know. Done nothing. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. He would have, yeah, holed up in a motel somewhere and, yeah, yeah watched daytime TV or something. Yeah. Like he's he's not a particularly compelling no. character. And I think this really everything in this series hinged on that that yep. casting yep, and that that portrayal. And there. you
0: wonder if maybe they were so aware of the difficulty of replicating Liam Neeson that just went in the opposite direction. Yeah. But I think it's it was cowardly is a strong word, but it it was it was. <laughs> it was uh, yeah, it was the easy avenue. Yes, right? I don't think I don't think yes. it was. It was
1: the most generic yeah. flattening of the of what was original and unique and enjoyable and fun about the Absolutely. original. Yep. So, look, I'm sorry for I'm sorry for recommending it because I'm out. Yeah. yeah, I'm out too. <laughs> I'm out.
0: Um, which brings yeah. us to next week's recommendation. So for so it's my my recommendation now. For sure, week. it is. So you know, it's kind of interesting. I continuing on from um, Murder Amongst the Mormons. I'm going to recommend Big Love. So okay. the HBO series. So this this to me. I think is the great underrated show of the golden era of, of um, HBO. It's uh, Bill Paxton. Um, oh, mental block. Um, Chloe Sevigny. Yeah, Chloe Sevigny, Jennifer Goodwin. But who's um, who's the? Oh, I've got mental block about um. Uh, uh, I'll say Linda Fiorentine. Who's uh, she, she, who's in Basic Instinct along with Michael Douglas and? Well, Clearly, you Stone. did your research. <laughs> I, 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 just, I just I've had a total mental block. Um, yeah. Yeah, look, it's 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 set in the Mormon communities in and around so Grace the in it as well. Oh, yeah. It's set in and around the Mormon communities of Salt Lake City. I haven't seen it for a long time, so really? I, you know, Carl and I have been thinking of rewatching it. I've, and I'm, yeah. I'm, I want to, I want to kind of sink my teeth into another great HBO show, and it's intimately associated with Mormonism. So it's written by Dustin Lance Black, who mm. grew, you know he grew up in the Mormon Church. No so, and the basic premise is that Bill Paxton plays. There's basically two communities in it. There's the Mormon compound on the edge of town, a fundamentalist compound, which still practices polygamy. And then there's, you know, the reformed church in town and Bill Paxton, Paxton plays a kind of effectively a closeted polygamist. So I, I oh. think it's it's the great underrated or underseen HBO show of the golden era. Mm. But I also haven't seen it for a while, so I really want to revisit it's it. certainly
1: underseen. I don't think it got a very no. prominent um, no. screening always, in Australia.
0: Always critically acclaimed, always yeah. massively critically acclaimed. Yeah. But just not as visible and I, I kind of I'm curious to see whether it holds mm. up and I kind of want to rewatch it again because I feel like I even I drifted off in the last season and didn't quite finish like I only have a really clear memory of the first three seasons but I remember loving it and finding it really fascinating so yeah nice continuation of the Mormon stuff with Big Love next week yeah cool um, I'm Billy I'm Drew that was Pilot Club